uh, in the kingdom of God. Um, we're very thankful that his church, Cleveland Road Baptist Church, has grown and that they've seen many salvations. They've witnessed many baptisms. Uh, but I think I respect him more, not for the church growth that they have seen, but I think I respect him more for the fact that he took a church uh, that only had 10 people. And uh, the Lord has used him greatly and his wife Audrey greatly in, uh, in growing that church. And we're very thankful for the work that's being done there. Uh, but uh, this is a young man that I look up to. I look to him for uh, advice and counsel. I love him with all of my heart. Uh, you will see that he is a better preacher than his father. Uh, so Parker, if you would give us about 30 seconds and then come and bring the word of God to us from Genesis 18. If you've not yet turned to that passage, please do that now. Amen. Well, greetings from Cleveland Road Baptist Church. What a joy it is to be able to worship with you at North Shore Baptist Church. Thank you for having us, and thank you for allowing me uh, to preach tonight. And Dad, thank you for the um, invitation to preach. Uh, every time I come back, things grow. The church here uh, has grown. My father's facial hair has grown. Uh, Valentino's muscles have grown. And so uh, we're hoping tonight to... Uh, grow our knowledge of the Lord through his word in Genesis chapter 18. So because you were off last week and you didn't meet, let me bring us collectively up to speed where we are so far in this study of Abraham's life. In Genesis 12, God calls Abram out of obscurity and promises that he will be the father of a great nation, that through Abram all the inhabitants of the earth will be blessed, and that Abram will inherit a promised land. In chapter 13, we get some insight into how wealthy Abram was. Behind me on the screen, you'll see that chapter 13, verse 2, tells us that Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold. Later in chapter 13, he and his nephew Lot decide to separate. After Abram defers to Lot, Lot looks up and sees a well-watered land called Sodom and Gomorrah and decides to settle there while Abram settles near the Oaks of Mamre. Remember that, Oaks of Mamre. In chapter 15, we have the crowning jewel of God's covenant with Abram. After telling God, you've given me no offspring, Abraham is assured that his offspring will be like the stars in the sky. In chapter 16, Abram and Sarai decide to take matters into their own hands. Sarai gives Abram her maidservant Hagar, and they have a child, and his name is Ishmael. In chapter 17, God visits Abram at the ripe old age of 99. God changes Abram's name to Abraham and Sarai's name to Sarah. And he says, not through Ishmael, but through another son that I will give you a year from now, Isaac, you will have your offspring. Sarah will have a baby. And in chapter 17, verse 17, it says that Abraham fell on his face. He laughed. He said to himself, shall a child be born to me who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90, bear a child? Now we get to chapter 18. And chapter 18 is divided into two major scenes, each scene with an important question. The first scene is another visit from God, but this time God is accompanied by two angelic beings. And in this first scene, God reiterates the prophecy he gave Abraham in the chapter before. This time it's meant for Sarah. And Sarah responds the same way Abram does, or Abraham rather. She laughs. But unlike Abraham, she is rebuked for her laughter. The second scene of chapter 18 focuses on God's pronouncement of judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham's subsequent intercession on behalf of the nation. Uh, intercession is just another word for plea or mediation. You might know the scene of Abraham bartering, as it were, with God 
If there are 50 righteous, 45 righteous, 40, 30, 20, 10, will you spare Sodom? These are our two scenes. Each scene comes with an important question for us to ponder, and they are behind me on the screen. Number one, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? We read that directly in verse 14. And number two, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Derived directly from chapter 18, verse 25. Those are two questions I want us to ponder throughout this sermon. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? As we think about those questions and we go to the Lord, now let's pray. Father in heaven, bless us as we open your word. Make us look more like Jesus as we exit than when we did when we entered. In his name we pray. Amen. Now chapter 33 is 33, I'm sorry, chapter 18 is 33 verses long. And although there are two main scenes, each with a question that I've just given you, I've broken our sermon into four bite-sized points this evening. Uh, number one, appearance. Number two, announcement. Number three, anger. And number four, ask. First, consider point number one, appearance. Chapter 18, verse 1 begins this way. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Where do we see the oaks of Mamre? Well, back in chapter 13, as Abraham and Lot separate, Lot takes Sodom, Abraham takes the oaks of Mamre, named Hebron. And now here he is, 99 years old, an old man in the heat of the day, taking his afternoon siesta, and verse 2 says that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Now, throughout the text, it's made clear that one of the men is the Lord, Yahweh, as it's literally translated. And we call this a theophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of God, meaning before the incarnation, when God came as flesh in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, here is a pre-incarnate appearance of him. Uh, some might call this the angel of the Lord. We see this elsewhere in scripture in chapter 17, what Harry preached on two weeks ago in Judges when an angel of the Lord visits Samson's parents as a fourth man stands in the fire. These are all theophanies, appearances of God before the incarnation, the angel of the Lord. But here, this appearance is not just God. He is accompanied by two angels. And what does Abraham do when he sees these three visitors? We'll look in the middle of verse two. It says that when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, Oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Now, get the picture. It was unusual for a man of great wealth to run. It was especially unlikely for a man of great age to run. And it was unheard of for a man of both age and wealth to run to anyone. Abraham was used to people running to him, yet here we see Abraham not only running to this group of three visitors, but casting himself down, bowing with his face to the ground. And as dust is inevitably entering his 99-year-old lungs, he mutters the words, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Now, there's some immediately ap immediate application for us in that the rightful approach of someone in the presence of God is always on our knees, bowing before him. Holy, 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 cry the angels of Isaiah 6. And Isaiah is on the floor crying out, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Uh, we almost hear echoed in our brains the words of Philippians chapter 2, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every knee shall bow. The knee of the young, the knee of the old, the knee of the poor, the knee of the wealthy, 
And at the sight of God, even a theophany in the Old Testament, a wealthy, respected man like Abraham is brought to his knees. James calls Abraham a friend of God, yet here we see that this friend knows his rightful place. And we would do well to imitate Abram and his posture as we encounter the living God. Now, Abraham likely knows that these men are passing through, and too tall of an ask would result in an outright rejection. He doesn't say, please, gentlemen, will you let me fashion a banquet with you? Will you stay the night? He shoots his shot, but he limits his shot to a layup, and he says, just a little water be brought in. Let me wash your feet. Rest yourselves under this tree. I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourself. Now, we'll see in just a moment that Abraham probably had a little more in mind, but nevertheless, he gets them to say yes. And at the end of verse 5, they said, do as you have said. Now, look at verse 6 and see the urgency with which Abraham moves. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it, make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the, and the calf that he had prepared, and he set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Abraham here is moving faster than his 99-year-old legs have moved in decades. He runs into the tent, he looks at Sarah, and he says, as quickly as your 90-year-old fingers can knead some bread together, do it as fast as you can. Three C is a fine flour. Now, that is an astonishingly large amount of food. In uh, 1 Samuel, when Abigail prepares a feast for David and his entire army, she makes five seahs of fine flour. So here, Abraham asks her to make 60% of that for just three men. As Sarah gets to work, Abraham filters through the catalog of livestock in his mind, and he says, I know the perfect calf. And so he carries the calf to his butcher, and he says, three fillets as fast as you can. In the meantime, he gets the curds or the cheese and the milk. And look at verse 8. I love this. He set it before them, and he stood by them, not even with them. He stood by them under the tree while they ate. Almost like a food network, uh, like a food network contestant, nervously awaiting, do they like it? Do they like it? Are, are you going to enjoy it? So it reminds me of while growing up here at North Shore, it was common for church members, perhaps even some of you, to host our family for meals. And then after you would serve us food, you would stand by as if to say, if there's anything you need, I'm here to serve you. And often my father would have to beg, please pull up a chair, sit with us, dine with us. But it was the posture of so many in this room. You are my guest and I am your host. Here we see the same approach of Abraham. So we have here the appearance, point number one, appearance of three men. And if there's application we can derive from this first point, it is to be hospitable. Hebrews chapter 13 says this, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, this passage is likely, Genesis 18 is likely what the author has in mind as he encourages the church, the Hebrew church, to be hospitable. Not that we will necessarily host angels on a daily basis, but that Abraham did. And you never know who's going to show up. It could be the Moore family. It could be Ethan Dean. It could be an angel, but always be ready to host whoever comes. Point number one, appearance. Point number two, announcement. Announcement. Look at verse nine. They said to him as they're eating this feast, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now, before we get to Sarah's response, I think it's worth asking why the repetition. Harry just talked to us two weeks about God doing the same thing 
to Abraham. So why the repetition? Now, some scholars think that chapter 18 is just an elaboration or more fleshing out of what happens in chapter 17, but I don't think that's what's happening here. More than likely, the Lord is returning because Sarah wasn't present for that first prophecy. Now, we don't know how much time has elapsed between chapter 17 and chapter 18. Maybe uh, Abraham had told Sarah, you're going to have a child, and she had scoffed and written it off. And so God returns to tell Sarah, maybe as a 99-year-old recovering from circumcision, Abraham didn't have time to get around to telling Sarah what was going to happen. But God returns in chapter 18, and he says, this is for Sarah. Look at verse 10. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, verse 11. Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Basically, what that means is she had already gone through menopause. She had been, uh, she'd, she'd all dried up by way of producing eggs. And in verse 12, it says that Sarah laughed to herself, not out loud, to herself, saying to herself, I am worn out. And my Lord is old. How shall I have pleasure? Now, we don't know if this is the type of pleasure that comes through intimacy or if this is the type of pleasure that comes by being a mother. It could be both. But the Lord said to Abram, the next verse, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Here here comes that ever important question that I asked you to ponder at the beginning found in verse 14. I think this is really the apex of scene number one. Is anything too hard for the Lord. At the appointed time, I will return with you or return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. What a fascinating scene. Like her husband, she responds to this outlandish prophecy with laughter, but this time she's called out. I did not laugh. And God says, no, but you did laugh. Remember what Harry told you two weeks ago? The name that God gives their unborn son is Isaac, or in Hebrew, Isaac, which means laughter. Here, really, we see a play on words. She laughs. God says, why did you Isaac? And she says, I did not Isaac. And he said, you did Isaac. And you will have Isaac a year from now in the form of a son. Two takeaways from this second point, two points of application. First, Nothing is hidden from God. Why is it that so often we foolishly think our actions are hidden from the Lord? When confronted like Adam in the garden or Sarah here, we try and cover up, we try and deceive ourselves and God. We say, I did not laugh. It's terrifying, isn't it? That this was silent laughter in a tent behind the door. These are internal thoughts. This is not the Lord overhearing Sarah say, ha! Me, 90 years old, I'm not going to have a baby. But despite the privacy, the Lord knows exactly what she does, despite it being in private. Let this be a sobering reminder that nothing we do falls outside the eyes of the Almighty. Nothing registers in our brain apart from the knowledge of God. Every thought infested with bitterness. Every desire ripe with jealousy. Every action motivated by pride. Every decision driven by greed. Every glance stirred by lust. We would do well to remember Hebrews 4.13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Every financial decision, every internet search, every judgmental glance, every silent curse, nothing is hidden from the Lord. 
And one day we will be asked the question, why did you laugh? And for those who respond, I did not laugh. Those who mock God and deny the very thing he knows to be true, this will be a sign that that person understands not his character, grasps not his holiness, and knows nothing of his wrath. Furthermore, it will reveal that that person knows nothing of his kindness or his ability to forgive or his ability to listen to sinners like us. For the one who continues lying to the day of death, you can be sure that judgment awaits. But for the one who responds in humility by saying something to the effect of, Lord, what I did was wrong, I shouldn't have done that, it's not the humility which will grant forgiveness, but it is humility which reveals that one's heart has been changed. Acknowledgement of guilt is often indicative of a heart that's been forgiven. So both on that final day and in the here and now, admit when you've done something wrong. And I think you'll find that those who are quickest to admit guilt and ask for forgiveness are often those who understand the grace of God and the mercy that comes through Christ alone. Takeaway number two. So that's takeaway number one. Nothing is hidden from God. Takeaway number two, and it is this question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's the question God asks when Sarah laughs. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, in our theological framework, we're quick to say, No, of course not. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. But what about when things seem impossible? Better yet, what about when things are impossible? You have a woman whose cycle has stopped. Not to mention she was barren in her youth. She hasn't been intimate with her husband for years. This particular ship has sailed, and the likelihood of her getting pregnant isn't one in a hundred. It's more like one in a million. And rather than her saying... So you're telling me there's a chance. She looks at the odds and she says, this is impossible. And she laughs. And for us, there are numerous situations. And from a human perspective, they are impossible. We may say with our lips, nothing is too hard for the Lord. But in our heart of hearts, we struggle to believe that he can do the impossible. Now, why do we have a tendency to strip God of his power to do the impossible? A couple reasons come to mind. Number one. Because we've never received a bodily visit from the Lord. We don't interact with God in the same way Abraham did. Number two, we rightfully attribute sovereignty to God, sometimes to a fault. We are quick to quote texts like Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases. We use that verse to justify that God would never do the seemingly impossible because he's up in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Third, we have seen those who pray for the impossible abuse the supernatural grace of God. We've all known people, perhaps we've even been a part of it ourselves, who have been deceived by the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, the name it, claim it movement. If you believe it enough, God has beckoned to answer it according to your will. And so as a response, we've swung the pendulum and said, God doesn't deal in the supernatural anymore. Fourth, perhaps like me, you just have a lack of faith. You haven't seen God move mightily, at least not what you hear he's doing in other people's lives, and your faith has become weak. So whether we diminish the nature-defying, seemingly impossible works of God because we don't interact with him face-to-face, we are too concerned with his sovereignty. And yes, I said that, too concerned with his sovereignty. We've been burned by the Name It, Claim It movement, or we have a lack of faith. We must ponder the question, is anything too hard for the Lord? No, but, ah, is anything 
too hard for the Lord. I'm talking about things in our lives which seem impossible. You and your wife have been trying to get pregnant for years. The womb is barren. The doctor's report isn't good. Is anything too hard for the Lord? You've been agonizing over the salvation of a loved one. You've shared the gospel in the most precise way with efficient language and scripture to back it up. Yet they have rejected the ways of Christ and you've started to lose hope. Is anything too hard for the Lord? You have a relationship that is ruined. It's broken. You've tried all you can do to fix it, but you're convinced things will never be the same. Is anything impossible for God? You've been struggling with chronic pain for over a decade. You've spent a small fortune to try and alleviate this physical infirmity, but nothing works. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Church, listen. I'm not saying if you pray hard enough, if you believe hard enough, then God will give you whatever you want. If you believe that, then you understand not the character of God. We have a visitor. I'll repeat that. I'm not saying that if you pray hard enough and if you believe hard enough, then God will give you whatever you want. If you believe that, then you understand not the character of God. However... I fear that many of us in reformed circles have become faithless prayers. We have far too often become stoic and rehearsed because we don't believe that God can do hard things. And I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 21, after Jesus rebukes the fig tree, Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only be able to do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And our response is, well, it doesn't actually mean that. Or we make a hundred caveats, but answer the question, is anything too hard for the Lord? Nor sure I can admit to you that I have been convicted when it comes to actually believing what I pray that God will actually, according, according to his will, answer it. And maybe his will is consistent with my desires. Maybe. But I have trouble believing that. Now, on July 19, 2023, I am praying in faith that God would save students at the University of Georgia that I could not have prayed a year ago because I did not have enough faith. And I am praying for the salvation of my children with a level of confidence that I don't think I had a year ago because I'm starting to believe that God can do the impossible. Do you realize that it is impossible for a dead man to be risen? Yet every time a sinner comes to faith, a dead person is risen. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. This is the one who spoke the world into existence and he upholds it by the word of his power. Do you not think that he can handle the situations of your life which seem like an impossibility right now? Now, I have been talking mostly about things in our lives which we desire that God has not necessarily promised to do. We need to pray in faith that he will save our loved ones, but he hasn't promised that he will do that. We need to pray in faith that he will bring physical healing to those who are broken, but he has not promised that he would do that. And if in his goodness he doesn't answer those prayers according to our will, it doesn't mean that we had too little faith and it doesn't mean that we asked for a bad thing. It means that in his kindness and in his sovereign counsel, there is something better for his children. With that said, there are certain promises which he has given us, which are guarantees, which we far too infrequently take advantage of. 
There are graces which have been imparted to us as a gift, but through our lack of faith, we have failed to obtain them. God has promised, this is not a maybe, God has promised that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Yet we as Christians often live with the noose of our guilt wrapped around our neck. God has promised Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Yet in the midst of anxieties, we don't believe this. You can ask my mom when I was on the plane yesterday, I don't believe this all the time. And many turn to remedies that the world would offer and find that their end is despair. God has promised that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Yet our sin remains in the dark. And when we experience spiritual discouragement, we wonder why. Maybe because we haven't believed the promises of God. God has promised that his grace is sufficient. That is, that in our weakness, his power is made perfect. Church, do you believe that? These are guarantees and they often seem impossible But may we be reminded tonight, nothing is too hard for the Lord. Point number three, anger. We've looked at the appearance. We've looked at the announcement. Now consider anger. Specifically, the anger of God towards Sodom. Verse 16. Then the men sent out from there, rather set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them and set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And the answer to that rhetorical question question is, of course not. I'm not going to hide from Abraham what I'm about to do. So look at verse 18. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Now, We don't have time to get into verses 18 and 19 here, but realistically, we could derive three different sermon series just from these facts. That Abraham, through him, all the nations will be blessed. That's the gospel. That's missions. The fact that God has chosen Abraham, that's God's sovereign choice. And the fact that Abraham, through God's sovereign choice, will command his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. That's a parenting seminar. But we don't have time for any of that. So look at verse 20. Verse 20. And see the anger. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Okay. This is very interesting. In some form, God has heard the outcry of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Was the earth crying out? Was the righteous remnant crying out? Was the sin of mankind crying out to make itself known to God? We don't know. But however, the news of the depravity of Sodom and Gomorrah got to God, it got to God, and now the anger of God is burning against this wicked and debased city. His anger continues in verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. Here we have the plan of the righteous anger of God about to be executed. But look at the middle of verse 22. Abraham still stood before the Lord. Abraham stood 
before the Lord. Quite a contrast to the posture of Abraham some 20 verses prior when Abraham is laying prostrate on the ground before him. Here he is standing before the Lord. And the reason he is standing before the Lord is because this is a matter of great urgency. The anger of God is coming. Now, what was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Look at Jude verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And Paul, in Romans 1, clues us in into what unnatural desires are. He writes, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So because of the sin of Sodom, specifically homosexuality, God's anger is coming. Which leads us to our fourth point, And that is ask, ask. And it's a big ask. Verse 23. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? (laughs) Here we see unbelievable intuition on the part of Abraham. He doesn't know God all that well. He has only interacted with him a few times, but he knows enough about God to question his anger. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? In other words, does your good character allow you to punish the righteous on account of the wicked? And the answer is no. Verse 24. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50? Far be it from you, Lord, verse 25, to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Then here at the latter half of verse 25, we have this second question I asked you to consider at the beginning of the sermon, the apex of this second scene. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? We're going to answer that question in a moment, but let's see how this chapter concludes. Verse 26. And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, who I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there. And he answered, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Now, at this point, Abraham has pushed the envelope as far as he's willing to push it. Could he have gone to five? Could he have gone to one? We don't know, but he doesn't. He stays at 10. Surely, he thinks, 10 righteous people will be enough to save Sodom. Maybe, he says, look, if there aren't 10 righteous people, maybe God needs to destroy the city to begin with. But in verse 33, we see the conclusion of this glorious chapter. says, and the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So what in the world is going on here? 
It's always been one of the more puzzling texts in the Old Testament. We have a man who is concerned for the well-being of a city where his nephew resides. More specifically, a man who is concerned with the righteous in a city where his nephew resides. He is aware of the atrocities of this city, but he knows the character of God well enough to know that God will not condemn the righteous on account of the wicked. God will not condemn the righteous on account of the wicked. And so he asks if God would relent. And he gets all the way down to 10 people. Two things I want us to see in this fourth and final point. Number one, prayer works. I think we can go a little further and say prayer changes things. I heard a pastor this past week when speaking on this text say that it wouldn't have mattered how many people Abraham had gotten God down to because God's mind had already been made up and this interaction was futile. And while certainly God knew how many righteous people were in Sodom in the first place, I don't think this pastor is correct. Why? Because look at what it says. God would have spared Sodom had there been 10 righteous people. God said that he would have spared Sodom had there been 10 righteous people. Prayer changes things. Now, without getting into all of the intricacies of prayer or doing a systematic study on prayer, let me give you a few statements, three to be exact, which are going to be on the screen behind me, which may sound like they contradict each other, but are actually true. Number one, God is sovereign and does all that he desires. Number two, everything that has happened and will happen is ordained by God. And number three, prayer changes things. All three of those statements are true. Consider James chapter five, verse 17. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. So the question arises, did it not rain because God ordained that it wouldn't rain or did it not rain because Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain? And the answer is yes. Does God decide things or do our prayers effect change? And the answer is both. And I use the word prayer, even though Abraham doesn't say our father who art in heaven. I use the word prayer because that's sort of what Abraham is doing here. He is interceding on behalf of someone else before God. And by the way, this is the only, this is the first time in the Bible when a man initiates a conversation with God. Up until this point, God has initiated everything. Now a man is saying, hey God, can we talk? So for us, you and I have loved ones who are separated from God. That's the reality of everyone here. And we pray that that person might be saved, and then God, in his kindness, saves that person. Was that person saved because you prayed for them, or was that person saved because God decided to save them? And the answer is yes. God is immutable, meaning he cannot change he was the same yesterday as he is today, as he will be tomorrow. But even within his immutability, prayer effects outcomes. It is a mystery beyond our comprehension. So the classic example of this is in Exodus chapter 32. It says in verse 13, Moses appealing to God. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land I have prepared and I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. <laughs> and then we read one of the most fascinating phrases in the whole Bible. And the Lord relented from disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. God is immutable, but at the same time, in his divine sovereignty, he relents. And here, 
Although his anger did ultimately come to fruition, and although Sodom and Gomorrah were ultimately destroyed, you can be rest assured that if there were ten righteous people, God would have relented from his wrath. And so while you and I may not advocate on behalf of an entire nation, I hope that we are all going before God in intercession, asking that he would have mercy on those we love. So parents... Pray for the salvation of your children. Brothers and sisters with unsaved spouses, pray that your husband or wife might be saved from the wrath to come. Pray that a righteous anger that God has for that unbeliever would be removed and that salvation would be imparted. And know that if he chooses to save them, it was in part because of your prayer. Prayer works Bold prayer works. Faith-filled prayer works. Application number two from this final point. Here's where we will land the plane. And it's with this profound question from scene number two. Verse 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Answer that question. And the answer is he shall. And he does. In the next chapter, he rains fire and brimstone down from heaven upon the iniquities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He does what is just there, and he always does what is just. Listen, friends, and because of this reality, we are all faced with an immeasurable problem. Because we know that there is none righteous, no, not one. And we know that the wages of sin is death. And we know that he will by no means Pardon the guilty. Therefore, this just judge, this holy just judge, doing all that is right in all of the land, sentences every human being to eternal condemnation on account of our sin. We have merited the wrath of God because the just judge of all the earth shall do that which is right. And the certainty of God's justice is dreadful news for sinners tonight. As dreadful as it was for Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. Shall not the judge of the earth do all what that is just? We hear that as humans born in sin, rebellious by choice, and we shudder in fear. Because God's anger, point three, is now our reality because of our sin and in light of his holy justice. But... As Abraham, a type or a shadow, stood before God and advocated for the righteous in Sodom, so we have one who is true and better, who advocates for his children. And as Abraham pleaded with God to not put the righteous to death with the wicked, so now we have Christ, the righteous, who was put to death for the wicked. And as Abraham's nephew is rescued from destruction on account of Abraham's intercession, so are God's children delivered from wrath on account of Christ's eternal intercession. As the justice of God brings forth wrath upon sinners, so now through Christ, the justice of God brings life for all who believe in him. 
Friends, shall not the judge of all the earth do that which is just is horrifying for those of you that remain in sin. But for the redeemed, for the believer in light of Calvary because of the cross, since God put forward his son to be the propitiation or wrath satisfying substitute, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just becomes a sweet smelling aroma and words of comfort to an anxious soul. For now, in light of the gospel, God cannot execute judgment or pour out his wrath on those who have been saved. When the cry goes out from the earth, injustice, as God pardons sinners, he points to the cross and he says, that is where justice and mercy meet. So the question is now raised, how does one experience this wrath-averting grace of God. How does one become saved? We've just said, for all who are saved, God can no longer bring his wrath upon us. And the answer is through belief in Jesus Christ. To acknowledge that you are a sinner separated from God, to acknowledge that you deserve the same wrath Sodom and Gomorrah deserved, but God in his goodness made a way of salvation by sending his only begotten son to die for all who would trust in him and to rise three days later, so that he may live to be your savior. It is the death and resurrection of Jesus that now provides hope to unbelievers. So North Shore Baptist Church, where do you stand tonight? Do you stand in the crosshairs of God's wrath, waiting for that day when he will say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. Or by the blood of Jesus, covering every sin you've ever committed, can you with confidence say, shall the just judge of all the earth do what is right. Because I am now found in Christ, wrath cannot touch me. (laughs) Well done, good and faithful servant. Come into the life Christ has purchased for you. Father in heaven, may we look at Abraham, may we look at Genesis 18, and may we see the ways in which you have saved your children through sending your only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise God. Amen. Praise God. Uh, Thank you, Parker. Uh, So many gospel parallels there at the end, but great practical application as we worked our way through the uh, text Uh, A very thorough treatment of the text, longest chapter we've done so far, Uh, and I I love the content, but I I think the content um, was uh, amplified, no pun intended, uh, by the enthusiasm uh, and by the uh, genuine conviction uh, that he gave. So praise God.